on the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Platforms. Frank McCann was untouchable. From the outside looking in, he had it all. Esther thought she had found the perfect man, mm-hmm. the perfect father to the children that she wanted, a family man. A clean living, successful publican and an Irish swimming superstar coach. We had no doubts about him, we knew nothing of another side of Frank. But that was all about to change. Esther is going to be told about the fact that Frank has had this baby with a 17-year-old swimming student. In a new three-part series, the Indo-Daily delves deep into the world of Frank McCann. Esther, aged 30, and 18-month-old Jessica died when fire swept through their home at Butterfield Avenue, Rathfarnham. And how he meticulously planned to kill his wife and child to hide his own sordid secrets. The fire which killed Esther and Jessica, that was Frank McCann's fourth attempt to take their lives. The Frank McCann Murders, starting tomorrow on the Indo-Daily. Available wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the Indo-Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo-Daily... Eamon Casey, his mistress and their secret son. Ireland in the 1970s and 1980s had a fondness for a very particular type of showmanship. What you're hearing there is the warm-up act, if you will, for Pope John Paul II during his visit to Ireland and in that particular instance to Ballybrit in Galway in 1979. And the man singing is Bishop Eamon Casey, a longtime darling of the devout mass goer, his peers and the media. Indeed, he was the perfect example of a celebrity cleric. Um, it was extraordinary, you know, when we asked you what you'd like to do, what you volunteered to do was rather unusual for a bishop. I loved the way he says, what you volunteered to do. <laughs> As if Mike didn't kind of, you know, in, you know, inject in what might I do. Well, let me tell you this, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. No. I enjoyed every minute of it. You did, didn't you? I did indeed. I got a great kick out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Until I left Mondello on Sunday. The world could have passed by and I wouldn't have known. But then it all went wrong. On May 7th, 1992, Galway was stunned by the revelation that its bishop was the father of a 17-year-old son, that Eamon Casey had had an affair while he was Bishop of Kerry with Annie Murphy and had fled in the night 
to the United States. Catholic Ireland was rocked by revelations of Bishop Casey's affair with an American woman called Annie Murphy, and they had a child together. When Annie broke her silence on RT Radio 1's Morning Ireland in 1992 after the bishop's resignation, a nation stood still while details of their secret love affair became common knowledge. I think the minute I laid eyes on him, it developed quickly. And I had a baby by Bishop Casey. I'm Siobhan Maguire, and on today's episode of the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Irish independent feature writer Kim Bielenberg to look at the dramatic fall from grace of Bishop of Galway, Eamon Casey. I came as an outsider to Kerry. I come like right to Galway, and I'm quite confident that the Galway priests and people will give me the same support and welcome as the representative of the Holy Father as they gave me in Kerry. Kim, the story of Bishop Eamon Casey and Annie Murphy was a sad tale of forbidden love, but also a veiled secret of silence we've come to associate with so many church-related stories here in Ireland. Can you bring us back to what happened in 1992 and how this story unfolded? Yeah, and it was the first big scandal, really. It was the prelude, as you say, to many other scandals, much more serious ones. But this was if you like to to quote Father Ted, this was the, the first kick up the arse of the bishops, you know, and it had a profound effect. Suddenly the moral authority of the hierarchy that had, you know, almost reigned supreme in previous decades was undermined. As reports of the latest revelations were read avidly early this morning, there was still almost unquestioning support for Bishop Casey and considerable hostility at the church gates towards the woman at the centre of the controversy. She's destroyed this man. It's disgraceful. But on the streets of Galway, that mood changed considerably during the day after people had listened to Annie Murphy and her son Peter speak on successive RTE radio programmes. I listened to the interview with the son this morning and I felt very sad reading for the son in what he said that he felt that he was really, he'd like to have got to know his father more. So who was Annie Murphy? Annie Murphy was a, a woman who lived in Connecticut. Now she had come to Ireland in the early 70s when Eamon Casey was Bishop of Kerry, and they were actually distant relatives, would you believe? And she came after a sort of messy breakup of a marriage. She'd had a miscarriage, a difficult time, and she came for a break, really, in Ireland to stay with Eamon Casey, and that's when they started to have an affair. This is back in 1974. So she's yeah. been sent to Ireland by her family um, to stay with Bishop Casey, a friend of her family. Yeah, it started in 1973. And then, you know, it was the following year that Peter was born in a hospital. And the circumstances of that was that the bishop didn't want her to keep the child. He kept coming into the hospital, even came in with adoption papers, wanted her to give up the child. But she, you know, was quite insistent that she wanted to keep uh, Peter. And um, during that period, you know, in the 70s, 
he would have preached about permissiveness, sexual self-control, all of these things, while in the background he had, you know, fathered a child. And so what was the instant reaction to that story here, uh, Kim? Now, you were working in the evening press when that story broke. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the morning it broke in, in morning papers and, um, you know, we were just flabbergasted and the news editor says, well, what, how do we respond to this? So the decision was made to go looking for the bursar. Eamon Casey was never going to be named anywhere near that bursar, but it was still an interesting document to have. The, the, the scandal went on for, you know, around for months and he, even years, you know, eventually Annie Murphy wrote her book for Forbidden Fruit, which was heavily sort of ghost written. And of course, she appeared to promote the book on The Late Late Show. And that was a notorious interview, really, where and Gay Byrne, I think, was criticized afterwards for treating Annie Murphy quite harshly during the interview. Mm -hmm. And I'm He's, not saying that he that say, he was cruel. He would I'm say saying, he was doing that, Annie, because he didn't have faith in your capacity to look after the child. That's what he would say. And so I should never have another child. I could never have another child. I'm only telling you what he would say. And how do you know that? I just know that. You do. But I have brought that child up well. Yes, you have. Okay, that's what I'm saying. The yes, child is, is, I gave my heart, yes, body, have. and soul. All right, that's Let's end with a note and say, if your son is half as good a man as his father, he won't be doing too badly. Well, I'm not so bad either, Will Mr. you settle for that? She remained very calm during that interview. When you look back at it, it's very uncomfortable uh, viewing, Kim, because here's a woman and it seems like the entire room was against her. I mean, she was torn to shreds by people in the audience who knew her. We sat on the bed and the bed did break and he took a few books and put them under there. Now it's well, yours, you know, that's any, it. I'm not there was here no, to there was score no points. I'm not here to score points with you. I feel the whole image you have depicted in this book is dreadful. The man that you maintain you loved, you're depicting as a villain. You are the heroine, which is extraordinary all the time. I mean, you, you know. I did not the, the man we as, knew, as The man villain. we knew as Bishop Casey was a very good, caring, compassionate man. And I bring that Who loved too. people. People in Ireland, the response in Ireland was quite divided. I mean, obviously, a lot of people were sympathetic and glad to see the hypocrisy exposed. But others were much more sympathetic to Eamon Casey. In fact, do you know, in Galway, some of the bookshops boycotted the book. Do you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't sell it out of sympathy for Eamon Casey, you know. So that went on f probably for many years until there were later allegations against Casey and much more serious ones of sexual abuse. There were three s separate allegations. That, that cast him in a much darker light and perhaps people were more considered in their defense of him after that. Because we talk about Ireland in the early 90s at that time, uh, Kim, and it doesn't feel like it's that long ago, really. But at the same time, you did have a country very much under the rule of thumb of the Catholic Church still. Yeah, I think by that time, it may have been just ebbing away slightly in terms of church attendance, but they still had so much control in health and education 
And this was the first big event, if you like, in a series of events. If you look at the 90s, you had the Casey affair. Then you had, you know, exposure of what was happening in residential homes, Mary Raftery's programs on RTE. The, perhaps the Casey affair contributed to the defeat in the divorce referendum. Then you had, you know, irreverent programs like Father Ted becoming very popular. So the 90s were where the, the sharp decline in the church really started. And when you mentioned Father Ted there, Kim, I'm reminded of Father Trendy, um, Dermot Morgan's character that he based Father Ted on. Now, and and that was a character that featured on programmes on on primetime television here in Ireland uh, on Saturday Night Live, where Eamon Casey was uh, a, a regular re, a regular contributor as well. Sorry, I wonder could I possibly... No, no, excuse no, me. Know, sorry, what I, dice, what no, dice, no, I just... What, sorry, what, I wonder if I could possibly get what, in here what for What dice do you belong to? Well, actually... Uh, <laughs> uh, I report to you as a bishop if you're not no, careful. No, I, I'd just like to explain that I have a very special diocese. Oh, no. uh, uh, last year, like, for example, I was with UTV, right? Uh, and uh, this year I'm with Archie looking after Mike and Gay in this business. Of course, there's a lot of temptations. <laughs> you just look at the band. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, the next week I'll probably would be next year I'll probably would be with BBC so in a sense you could say that I'm sort of doing stations Bishop <laughs> when we talk about Eamon before all of this scandal broke him he was a really popular priest wasn't he I mean he could do no wrong in the nation's eyes and he was a bit of crack and he loved his fast cars and he loved his cigar and wasn't he a great man altogether yeah I mean he was the sort of great in, in some ways by the time of the Pope's visit in 79, where he played a big role, he was a sort of charismatic figure. He was the future, the media-savvy priest. You know, you have to remember that a lot of the bishops were very doer individuals, you know, quite drab, whereas he could joke, he could sing. He'd also been very innovative in his approach to issues like housing. In London, he raised aware awareness of housing issues for immigrants in London, Irish immigrants. And he was extremely enterprising in, in, in helping them. These are young people whom we have already failed. We couldn't give them jobs. We've already failed them. And now when they have to leave because we've failed them, we, we leave, leave them go totally unprepared because the government is not prepared to put the kind of money that they should put in. Then he went on to lead Trocra, the charity for the developing world, where, you know, he was very, very outspoken. If military spending was stopped for four days, it could feed all the malnourished and hungry people in the world for one year. That's a frightening factor. Hypocrisy, as they say, is the tribute vice pays to virtue, you know, and um, he, he was a great example of that, I suppose. And so he's uh, Bishop of Kerry then in the late 60s and then goes on to uh, Bishop of Galway, which essentially is a promotion for him um, in the 70s. And it's it's really from there he starts to blossom. As you said earlier, he, he has that media savviness about him. He knows exactly what his audience wants from him beyond a good mass, obviously. So he really performs well. I mean, he, he is a, he's a very likable character. Yeah, and like I suppose he would have been well known um, for his work with Trocra Charity. He was present at the funeral of famous 
churchman, Archbishop Romero in El Salvador, and he was there during the killing of Archbishop Romero and uh, witnessed all of that. So he could, even when he was in Kerry, he, he traveled a lot and uh, there was a famous remark made about him. I think it was quoted in Hibernia magazine like that God is everywhere. Bishop Casey is everywhere, but in Kerry, you know, because he was much traveled. But you have to remember also that when he became a bishop back in Ireland, you know, he established his re reputation to such an extent that he had never served as a parish priest before he became a bishop, he went straight from being a sort of curate or chaplain to being a bishop, which, and he was quite a young bishop, you know, at 42, that was quite young for, for becoming a bishop. Yeah, that must have been unheard of, really. Yeah, yeah. So he, he I think initially he found it hard to adjust then to becoming a bishop, but he quickly got on board. He knew how to find people to help him, and he seemed to have a sort of loyal, devoted following, you know. But I mean, meanwhile, in the background, um, Annie Murphy was had gone back to America with Peter. He was actually paying, making payments of $275 per month uh, at one stage. Uh, yes, there was, because I needed to settle some kind of monthly payment, child support for Peter, my, our son. And he had belligerently and begrudgingly offered me $100 a month. And I said that was chicken feed. And that I would have to go to Rome and make, my, and make our son a ward of the church. So you threatened to take your son to Rome to make him a ward of the church. Yes, uh, what, was was Dr. what was Dr. Casey's reaction to that? Well, he waited a while, and I was going to Rome. I was getting my tickets, and, and I was, you know, making the proper channels and to find out who to call and, and who to do. And within 48 hours, he came up and said he would pay me $175 a month, and I said, okay. And then gradually, she felt that he... he, he he should be supporting um, Peter more and also acknowledging him, just as importantly, acknowledging that he existed. So she sought more money for him going to college. And this is when the sort of pressure grew upon him because they were seeking money. And eventually Annie Murphy, I think, became so frustrated that she 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 went uh, public. I mean, he only really met Peter, you know, fleetingly. I think during this period, on one occasion when these negotiations were going on before it went public. For seventeen years, he never uh, spoke to me or really made any contact except for a five-minute visit in a New York office about nineteen ninety. And just before the story broke and Eamon Casey knew this was coming down the line because he fled the country when the story did break. And as you say, Annie was back in Connecticut with Peter. And then we had that very poignant interview on uh, Ortiz Morning Ireland where, where she spoke candidly about the fact that Eamon Casey was the father of her child. What has since happened, um, Annie and Peter? 
in the years after the story broke, Eamon Casey would travel to America and meet Peter in Boston or New York. In fact, Casey got Peter a job in a restaurant and he was working in the restaurant trade for a while and he would go over and meet him. And they formed, Peter interestingly said, it wasn't like a father-son relationship. It was more like a friendship. And that went on. He would visit quite regularly. Then it was once a year. And then I suppose Casey became you know, more elderly and it was more difficult to for him to, to, to visit America. And it was quite sad because Peter said that he tried to ring him in Ireland and Casey didn't know, you know, didn't recognize who, who he was. You know, he, his faculties had declined. They, he never really patched up the relationship with Annie Murphy, though. You know, she, she was back in America. She eventually moved to, to California, has spoken about it occasionally, but, you know, they, they never reconciled, really. The emergence into the light of other hidden realities in Bishop Eamon's life, beginning with the fact that he had a son, Peter, were profoundly upsetting for the church and for people in general. But irresponsibility, infidelity, and sin are very shocking in the lives of those who preach the gospel. And Eamon Casey did return to Ireland, but, you know, the, the, the priesthood was no longer an option for him. Um, how did he live out his days? It, initially, he went to Ecuador, of course, and w- was um, posted over there uh, after the scandal. And he came back to England, very low profile. He was in Sussex. And then eventually, in the early 2000s, he, he came back to Ireland, uh, to, to County Galway, and he lived very quietly. I mean, he lived out his days in a nursing home in, in Clare. What was he remembered for then, um, Kim? Because what happened really was the, almost the beginning of the end for the, the Catholic Church's real hold, real grasp on the people of Ireland. Yeah, I mean, initially, people might have been inclined to forgive. Given what transpired later and what emerged later, people might have been inclined to forgive him for what had happened and he'd served his time, etc. And he did apologise. And he did apologise. I regret that in the past, I let a number of people down. It caused great hurt to some. And for that, I am deeply regretful and sad. Do you know, an affair seemed quite minor compared to the very, very serious scandals that happened. But then after he died, more allegations emerged or were publicized about, you know, his niece, Patricia Donovan, alleged that she'd been sexually abused by him. Gorthy and Limerick began investigating a claim that he sexually abused a young woman 30 years previously. They eventually cleared him of the allegation. It was investigated in 2005, 2006, and she went public after he died with an interview in a Sunday paper. And there were two other serious allegations made, and in these cases, compensation was paid. So 
that showed him in a in a much darker light and you know it showed that th there was a whole darker side to his personality that we didn't really know much about and my thanks to Irish independent features writer there Kim Bielenberg I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode was produced by myself, researched by Garrett Mulhall and sound by Gavin Hennessy. Archive clips from RTE Archives, Morning Ireland on RTE Radio 1 with its exclusive interview with Annie Murphy in 1992, The Late Late Show on RTE1 and independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.